Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. And we will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today is director Jim Wynorski. He's going to be coming up in just a moment. He's a writer, he's a producer, he's a director, he's very prolific, he's got hundreds of film credits. He's also an actor and has done so many other things. You're going to want to listen to him. It's going to be a good time and a fun time, especially if you know any of Jim's movies. All right, but before we get into that, let me say that the chat room is also open, so if you're listening live, you can join us in the chat. The official URL for Rex Sykes Movie Beat, that's me, Rex Sykes, your host, is rexsykes.com. It's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. That's my name. And all of these interviews you can listen to right from rexsykes.com. At the interviews blog, you just go find my guest name, scroll into the the biography page, and I encourage you to go read Jim's biography as, as well as all my guests. And right from uh, about the middle of the page, there's a link to listen live or archived because all of these interviews are recorded and archived right there at Rex Sykes Movie Beat. They're also available as podcasts at the iTunes store, and they're all for you free because Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you. That is why I connect you up with people who are making it happen. Now, all you need to do is listen, join us, have fun, learn And the one thing I ask of you in exchange for getting all this valuable free information is to help spread the word. Use your favorite social media means. Do it in person. Do it by email. Do it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that you choose. Share these interviews. Share this website far and near to all of your friends and industry connections. And also, please leave comments at the player, uh, whether it's a live show or a recorded show, or rate and review the podcast. Because when you do... It helps extend our reach to other people who may not know about the show yet, may not get this, these valuable golden nuggets, these what to do, what not to do, the, the, the important suggestions and tips and advice for my guests. Um, when you leave a comment or you rate and review the show, uh, it increases our Internet presence. When you share it to other places and post it you know, on your wall and in Twitter, it increases our Internet presence and allows other people to stumble upon or discover the show. All right. Well, enough about that. I want to tell you a little bit uh, about my guest, and um, that is Mr. Jim Wynorski. He's a director. He's a producer. He's uh, a writer. He's a veteran filmmaker with over 25 years of experience. He's uh, done everything that you can imagine. He, uh, his first picture he wrote and directed was Chopping Mall, and the rest is history. And from that point, he directed an average of three to five films a year, even more as a producer and a writer. And he's, a, and he's responsible for a steady stream of exploitation uh, flicks during the 80s. I'm going to bring him on now, and we're going to be talking about um, 
his approach to making movies. How are you, Jim? Hi, Rex. How are you? Welcome uh, to uh, my world over here in uh, New York. That's where I'm currently working. And and uh, awesome. How are you today? How's, how's I am on? great. It's a little overcast here in uh, New York City, but uh, all's good. Well, cool. Jim, uh, I'm I'm really pleased to have you on the show. You've done it all. If if someone looks at your IMDb credits, you've got you know, and I you know IMDb IMDb can be notoriously inaccurate for getting everything up there. But you, you're listed as uh, at least 92 movies as a director. You've got uh, at least uh, another 56 as a producer, a writer, 49 actor, 36, and then there's miscellaneous crew and casting director, sound department, second unit, composer, production. I mean, just all sorts, cinematographer. Uh, just all sorts of all sorts of things you've been in. This it all business. adds up to nothing, Rex. But uh, <laughs> thank you for mentioning it. Well, uh, and and you're humble. <laughs> so, that and three uh, bucks will get me on the subway. Yeah, well, that's oh, yeah, isn't that true? But uh, but no, I mean you've done done an awful lot, and uh, and you're and you're still making movies, and you make uh, a, a lot of movies. And uh, anyone who's on Facebook who sees the uh, the number of of, of uh, titles or images that that sometimes you post and, and remind us of, you know, it's just a fabulous thing. Um, I do that because I'm bored, Rex. It's two uh, o'clock in the morning. I just finished writing or whatever I'm doing, and and I said, well, maybe I'll just post a few pics. So. I go through my computer and pick a few choice ones and post them. Well, but it's it's cool. I mean, you you, you know, uh, you started uh, back with Corman. You start, you know, your first movie was Chopping Blow. So all, all these movies since. I mean, that's part of, for example, my history. Twenty five years later, they're, they're you know all these movies that I've seen and and grown old. I can't say grown up to, but grown older with. Um, y- you know, uh, I was talking with you earlier, and we were talking about. Um, how you know you started as a trailer cutter, and and my question is is you know you had the opportunity to cut trailers, and uh, and and then move from there to directing movies. What what did you learn, or could you appreciate from from your early experience in, in as an editor, trailer editor, to to bring to um, directing the movies that you then later made. Well, when I first started out, I was working in the advertising department for Roger Corman. And um, that included doing almost everything, creating posters, creating uh, press book material, and also creating trailers. And I was not really a good trailer cutter because I was uh, a graduate of film school, and they always teach you the wrong things in film school. And uh, thanks to Roger Corman and uh, um, a, an editor that he had working for him at the time named Clark Henderson, I was uh, shown the ropes. And um, I quickly picked it up, and I realized that um, a lot of people think too linear when they're cutting trailers. And uh, that was me. But then I quickly made an about-face and started cutting uh, Roger Corman style. And uh, it served me well later on when I was making uh, movies. Well, when you said something important there, film schools teach you wrong. What what are the important things that that uh, someone needs to know that uh, isn't covered in film school? You know, I I found this out. You know, I went to film school. I made a couple of films when I was there. Um, I was told I didn't have the aptitude for making movies, and not to come back. And uh, oh, wow. I I I did exactly that. I didn't go back. 
Um, but I ended up, you know, making commercials and uh, here in New York City. And then I moved to California and met up with Roger. And uh, I just think that um, film school teaches you, you know, film theory. They show you a lot of movies, but they really don't tell you the hands-on practices that you need every day to make a good movie. Um, when I just before I directed Chopping Mall, which was the first uh, film I did for Roger Corman, um, he took me to a lunch and he said, "Bring a notebook." And I brought a notebook and uh, he sat there for two and a half hours and said, "This is what you have to do." And uh, he outlined everything, and I still have that notebook. It is wow. it was it is chock full of it's film school in two and a half hours, and it's the correct film school in two and a half hours and uh, the guy was a you know he's, a, he's a, like a cinematic genius and he said you know would say uh, give me like a test question you're stuck in a you're filming in a phone booth where do you put your camera and uh and uh it was questions like that and and each time they were tough you know kind of tough questions to think you had to think about and then he would answer in his version how to how to shoot in a phone booth, how to shoot in a in a living room, how to shoot when the sun goes down, how to shoot when uh, you know uh, an actor doesn't show up. All these things that film school never teaches you, but you you have to live with in 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 real life when you're making a movie. You know, what do you do when it rains? What do you do with this? What do you do with that? He said, This is this is how it how it works. And that book, that notebook, is uh is still a prize to me because uh actually Adam Rogers signed it after a couple of years. Um because it, it it's just full of great facts about how to make a movie and how to make it for a budget and how to how to do it right. So that is that is really you know, an amazing experience one to have to be mentored in that in that regard. You know, few I mean that's why we do the show is to try and get people like yourself to you know, to share information with others who don't have access to uh people in person to get that kind of hands on experience. So uh, again, I mean I'm I'm very pleased that you're here and um and those considerations are truly you know, important consideration. So just just the one that piqued my curiosity was, like you said, it will, so if you're shooting in a phone booth, where do you put the camera? I'm sure our listeners would be intrigued to hear, you know. Well, thoughts. the answer to that is this, and and the reason he said shooting in a phone booth, I don't think there are phone booths anymore, but... Um, there are there. there. Um, but at the time in, in, in the 80s, there still were phone booths. Sure. Um, but he, but Rogers line to me was how do you sit, where do you put your camera and he and the, the the answer was don't shoot directly into the phone booth um shoot in at an angle into a corner and it all uh, emphasized depth that the most important thing in front of a camera is the depth of the picture and if you're confined to a phone booth it's better to shoot into the corner of a phone booth so you have angles rather than shoot directly into the phone booth where you have just a flat wall and that was a very you know uh 
interesting tidbit of information that I've always kept in my head. Um, where you put the camera is very important. And if you shoot into a corner, you have more depth because you have two walls intersecting. If you shoot it just right at a wall, all you have is a blank white or beige wall and a shadow and your and your and your subject. And that's not as interesting as a corner. That is fascinating. I mean, the idea is that we, you know, we are storytellers, uh, you know, on film or or digital media now, but but to to have visual aesthetics, and I think a lot of people, you know, get the idea that they can just point and shoot, but the value of understanding what you're talking about, what a good cinematographer would, would understand, or what a good uh, director would understand, is is how to create, you know, something on the screen that is is visually appealing even in less than optimal circumstances. Well, if you're shooting in, in, in a low budget, it's always less than optimal. Right. Um, you know, if, you have, if you're shooting uh, the Avengers, you have all the money in the world to do whatever you want to do. But if you're shooting in your backyard you, and you're living on peanut butter and jelly, you have to think about how can I be imaginative uh, with what I've got. And that's always the the the, the biggest uh, fallback or drawback to some people who just pick up a camera and shoot. They don't really realize what they can do with it um, because they don't practice with it. And um, I've always, I'm, you know, I'm always been practicing with cameras and tr- trying to make different shots and, and figure out new ways to shoot things. Of course, on my budgets, I have to go very fast. But if I have the knowledge in my head, I can still shoot something interesting. Well, you, you know, you and I have talked, and you said, you know, you do, you do, you do work fast. And how is it that you're able to do that? Is it does it come from, uh, you know, the, again going back to the beginning in, in terms of, uh, you know, working as an editor that you know, you know, in advance where you have to be in your next setups. I mean, you've 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 got it all tracked, or do you do you actually storyboard? Well, you know, a lot of people say write story. You know, write, you know, do sketches, do storyboards. Um, I did that a couple of times, and I realized when I got to the set, there was always problems. There's always, you know, if you if you storyboard something, <clears throat> and then suddenly you get there, and uh, the guy says, "Oh, you can't shoot over there. You can only shoot over here." Like you can't, we're we're blasting in that area. You got to shoot over here. We have patients coming in. You have to shoot over here. So all the storyboards you did for over there are suddenly no good anymore. And you have to be ready to adapt in your head what you're going to shoot and how you're going to shoot it. Are you going to have to move outdoors? Would it be better to move outdoors? And all these things have to flash through your head and you have to figure it out. It's like a chess game. Uh, you have to know it's not the next move; it's the next ten moves, and they all have to be in your head. And over the years, I've really got a, a knack for doing that, figuring out what the next ten moves are, or the next twenty moves are, because I know that the sun is going down. I have to shoot my exteriors before I shoot my interiors. I, I know this, I know this, I know this, but I know, I know one actor is late. What am I going to do? And that's all stuff that you have to think about 
and prepare for. And and sometimes storyboards, as good as they are, in a big, you know, ten million dollar show, it doesn't work when you're in a fifty thousand dollar show. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the idea that uh, you know somebody with hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars can throw money at it to solve their problems, but but uh, having uh, considerably less than that, having fifty thousand or a few hundred thousand or anything, you know, under a million. Um, well, look at this Brad Pitt movie uh, that, that I, the zombie movie that's about to open. I think it's called uh, Z Z World or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, they reshot it. I, I believe at least half the movie. They made the movie and went out and reshot it again because they didn't like what they had, and. That's what you can do when you are a studio. You can say, well, this didn't play well. Let's go reshoot it. But uh, in uh, in the world of Roger Corman or Sci-Fi Channel or Lifetime, all the arenas I work in, you're given usually, you know, 12 to 18 days to make a movie. And you have to use every day uh, well to make sure it gets done properly. And um, it means it means thinking out what you're going to do every morning. Every you know, I've done 160 movies, and and right. every the day before I shoot anything, I'm always getting my 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 stomach queasy, my agita, because I have to start start thinking like what's going to happen, what could happen, and um, it's always good to think that way because something usually does happen. Or somebody doesn't show up, or you know, an actor doesn't show up, or a prop doesn't show up. What are you going to do? So there's always like the you know thinking about what could happen. I've always likened uh, filmmaking to you know uh, used a sports analogy you know, that you you have to play offensively, but you also have to be defensive too. And it's really contingency planning or spending a lot of time putting out fires. So if you know what likely could go wrong in advance you you may be able to preempt some of it but uh, most likely you know you're going to find yourself on your feet thinking you know at the last minute about some new issue that comes up that you couldn't have considered uh, well, but the more that you can plan it in your head and know you know the, have different routes available for solving things and the more experience like you have you know obviously the it doesn't necessarily become easier but maybe it does become more rapid well, the good thing about um, you know working a lot is that you find people that are are your equal in terms of producing. Um, Roger Corman certainly was a fabulous producer. Uh, I'm currently working with a, another gentleman named uh, Bill Dever, who is like an incredible producer. I've had him on five or six shows now, and he's worked with me hand in hand and he keeps the uh, wolves at bay by you know making sure I don't have to think about this or that or whatever and uh it allows me to just create on the set and not have to worry about you know lunch and yeah. will it be will it be on time or if the actors are going to be there or the production insurance is ready you know being a producer is is a is a it's like one of the toughest jobs because you got to really think ahead and, and get it all together. And, and um, Bill's really good at it. And um, 
you know, Roger was had assigned people to me when I was making those earlier movies that were really good at it, and it just it took the hardship of of business away from me, so I could create. I think I think you've 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 spoken a mouthful, especially for emerging filmmakers, uh, and and those people who are attempting. We've got a, someone dialing on the, on the line here, I believe. I don't know if someone's on the line. Hello. I'm here. Anyway, okay. Um, I was going to say that I, oh, I think no. with emerging. I think with emerging, no, no, no worries. I think with emerging filmmakers, particularly, are those you know truly uh, hampered by budget constraints. Oftentimes, they don't have a producer, or they don't have, you know, somebody who can be that liaison or be that buffer for uh, for themselves as a director. Nor do they necessarily have you know a good first AD who who can uh, you know manage the set and 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 help allow the director to concentrate on what the director's task is at hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, you know, if I had to tell anybody anything, I would say get yourself a producer who knows what they're doing. And don't I have. I have. No, you do. I won't go into one of these things without somebody uh, along like Bill that'll, uh, that makes the, that clears the road. It's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a challenging job, and uh, he does it very well. Roger does it well, and um, you know, I worked with a number of other people like Steve Goldenberg, and you know, who who just clear the road and make it easier for me. It's it's an interesting thing because I've I've worked on you know some really low 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 budget things, and and have had difficulty where you know the first AD doesn't show up for the day and we have to go ahead and shoot anyway and so I'm you know telling the DP I'm going we're going from here to here to here to here and they're yelling back going I can only do one thing at a time you know mm-hmm. and and for for me I mean I I think you know what I'm hearing you saying is the importance of being able to to know where you are and where you have to go and know what you've accomplished in the meantime you know are 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 really important for the director, but in order for you to be able to to do that, you know, you do have to have a zone in which you can think, and where not everybody's running to you with, like you said, with whether the insurance or lunch is ready, and and um, and so this is this is a, a really a strong point that I that I think you're making here, you know, is is if you're entering this world, find somebody who you can. Really rely on and really trust who right who, a strong producer is 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 so valuable in making a making a film um, even if you're the most creative director in the world you need you need a guy who knows business who knows who can interact with crew who can interact with with uh vendors who can make your job easier. And take the take the pressure off of of, of uh, the director while he's making a show, and uh, it's it's a tough job at being a producer. Uh, yeah, very much so. I would think. Do what what besides the producer? Then who else do you would you lean on or rely on? In, in... okay, you want to make a movie, Rex? Here's what you here's what Let's you need. Here's what right. you need. First of all, you got to go out and get some money, and that's the toughest job in Hollywood. 
the toughest. No, no question about it. You got to go out, <clears throat> find some dentist, find some uh, you know uh, uh, doctor, find somebody who's got a little spending cash who wants to get in the movies. Uh-huh. Find find that money, okay. Get what you, you know. Do a budget. Find out exactly what you need. Then ask for twenty percent beyond what you need because you're going to need it anyway. Right. Because you're going to you're going to find later on that maybe twenty twenty five percent you know uh, is going to be tacked on to what you've done because prices go up. Things that you thought thought were going to cost a dollar cost a dollar ten or a dollar fifteen. You got to be ready for that. All right, so you get your money. Toughest job in the world. People will tell you they have money and then not give it to you. People will say, right. I want to make a movie. Here's I'm gonna give you some money and then they'll you'll they'll disappear. Yeah. Right. And it's the so it's the toughest job in Hollywood is finding money. All right, let's say you get the money and let's say you get it in an escrow account. Okay, now you're ready to start making a movie. Um the three or four people that you need to get a hold of is a, di- a director of photography, a good sound guy that can record sound, a producer, and a an editor. Okay, those are the f- four key people behind the scenes. A uh, director of photography. Who's going to keep things in focus? Because if you're having blurry shots, you're done. You're over. Walk away. Put the, put the film on a hard drive and put it in your garage. Um, <laughs> right. Um, a producer that knows what he's doing, so that at the end of the day, um, you don't come you come you don't come out saying, "Well, I thought I had this amount of money, but oh, I spent that on this, and now you don't have enough money to finish the movie." So you need a producer that knows. The, the, the finances and how to interact with people and actors, etc. Then you need a sound guy. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, I can get anybody to hold a boom. Well, that's not the case. You need somebody who, who knows exactly how to get the best sound available because if you don't, you're going to have a lot of t- hard hardship in post and you're going to have to bring all the actors back to record their voices and it's going to be a nightmare. So you need a sound guy. And finally, you need an editor that knows how to put two strips of film together. And because you can have the best film in the world, if if it's not put together well, it's going to look choppy. It's going to look it's going to look un, un, unusual, and it's not going to uh, um, do its job when it's when it's front, when it's in front of an audience. So those are the four. You know, makeup. I kind of, you know, on a big show, I'll certainly have makeup to keep the the main actors, you know, you know, have to take the sweat off their faces. But in right. a lot of cases, you don't have, you know, you can't afford a makeup girl. And uh, if you're hiring actresses, most of them know how to make themselves up. And you, you tell them beforehand, you're going to do your own makeup. And wardrobe, bring your own wardrobe, ladies. Bring your own wardrobe. Bring a suit, uh, sir, because you're going to need it. And most actors will bring a suit or bring a bring wardrobe that's appropriate, unless you're making a costume drama or you need a, a police uniform, which you have to rent it. So you can get away with a, without a lot of people, but you need those four. Somebody's going to, you know, be your buffer on set, the producer, 
uh, a good sound guy, a good director of photography, and a good editor. If you have those four, you can make a movie. And you have to, when it, of, co- go ahead. of course, let the uh, let the dentist and the doctor have a small part because uh, they gave you the money. Or the of dentist course. and the doctor's girlfriend. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Somebody always wants a part. Hey, let me ask you this. Uh, because it goes back to my original question, and I, I, this is golden, and I really appreciate it. Uh, you started as a, as a, you know a, a trailer editor, but you said prior to that you were in marketing, and I have essentially two questions here. I'll, I'll maybe throw out both of them at the same time, but the, the one is is a lot of movies can get made, but unless they're well marketed and well advertised, and and that they may not ever find an audience. So there's a there's a challenge, especially in this I think digital age, there has been all along to get a movie out to an audience. But some of the traditional channels for distribution are changing and and things. So, but, the, but this what, sounds like a hell of a question, Rex. <laughs> well, I'll stop with the one question then. So the first part of the question is is in terms of the marketing. Um, you know, if I have a pair of shoes, I can't get people to buy my shoes unless they know about it, unless I can market it. But but you starting in marketing and advertising and creating posters, did that help you tell a story? In other words, the, no. the idea of no, PR to no. line it didn't. Okay. Let me tell you. Okay. When Roger hired me as his advertising director, he said, it's best you don't see the movies. It'll 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 stifle your your creativity. Interesting. So in a lot of cases, he just said, "Here's the title. This is what it's about. Do a poster." Uh huh. And if it had a couple stars, we'd we'd paint the stars. Pick. This is back in the '80s when most of the key art was paintings. Right. Right. And that was with for you know most studios were still yeah. doing il- illustrative art for right. their posters. Now it's two heads and and a, a guy with a gun or something, and that's it. Right. I think today's advertising sucks. And um Absolutely. By concept. Um, I, I think it I think it's trailers that sell a movie these days. More than certainly more than poster art. I haven't seen any poster art. Uh yeah. The only poster art I've seen recently, I think they they, they had a painted piece of art for uh, the last Indiana Jones film. But other than that, it's mostly just you know, right. Photoshop heads, and that's right. it. It's crappy. Now I don't, and and I don't mean the 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 poster. What I'm talking about is the process that you underwent in terms of thinking about how to sell a movie. Um, even if you hadn't seen it, you you knew what it was about, and you said, okay, I'm going to try and sell it. Does it, does that help you in any way with Rex? Selling? I grew up on on on, on phony posters in the fifties. <laughs> right. Okay. Attack of the uh, Invasion of the Saucer Man, you know, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. None of those posters depicted what really happened in the movie. Well, exactly. So, I carried that tradition on when I worked for Corman. I tried Uh to come up with posters that that would that would shout, "See me!" Okay. And even if the film was was less than, um, you know, action filled. I tried to create an action-filled poster that just asked the audience to come in and sit down. Okay, so that was part of the deal when I was working for him. I was like, sure. I was, and 
Roger was not adverse to you know going to a stock footage shot of a helicopter exploding. I mean, right. I must have cut ten trailers, and I always put this shot of a helicopter exploding. <laughs> you know, if someone pointed a gun at anything in the sky or or, or off screen and pulled the trigger, I would cut to the ex- helicopter exploding. It was like he would somebody was shooting a helicopter out of the sky, and it was totally bogus. Most times the films didn't have any helicopters, but the trailer did. I mean, my most famous trailer was was a, a film for uh, uh, a trailer for a, a movie called Island of the Fishmen, which uh, Roger changed to the title Something Waits in the Dark, and it was an Italian Jules Verne movie with monsters set in the 1800s. Okay, and I told him don't sell it like a like a slasher movie. And, of course, he said, you know, I want it done this way. And when Roger says, do it this way, you do it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I did it. He approved it. The film tanked in its initial run. They would, they would, they only had like 25 prints, and they would bust them around the country so they didn't have to pay a lot of money for for film prints. Anyway, he had, a, he had one engagement, and it died under that title. And he pulled all the prints back, and he said, Jim, do do whatever you want. And at the time, Scanners was a huge success, so I changed my title to Screamers. And uh, there was an old um, record uh, that I had as a kid about with radio shows, and it was a, one of the radio shows was about a man turned inside out. And I said, Screamers, they're men turned inside out, and worse, they're still alive. Wow. Okay? Wow. And then Roger's uh-huh. shooting a movie called Galaxy of Terror. Oh, um, yeah. On the on the on the lot where he in, in Venice, mm-hmm. I went down there on a weekend when they weren't shooting, and I shot a trailer for Screamers with an actress and Rob Bottin who was about to do the thing, creating an Inside Out man, and I shot a, a basically a thirty second TV spot called Screamers on the set of Galaxy of Terror, so it looked like a totally epic science fiction film and i showed roger the painting i showed and i and that was it he said that's fine we'll have do another test date this is about a month after i'd started working there and uh i get a call on saturday morning um at 7 a.m and it's roger and i said oh this can't be good and he says jim what did you put in that trailer for screamers and i told him what i did and he said, "Is any?" And he said, "Is any of that footage in the actual film?" And of course, I stuttered and I said, <laughs> "No." And I figured the next line out of his mouth was was going to be, "Jim, you're fired." But it wasn't. Right. It was not. Uh, he he basically said, "Jim, we're going to have to put that footage in the film." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because they rioted at the drive-in last night." pulled out all the speakers, and threatened to lynch the manager. This was somewhere in Georgia. Uh-huh. And he said, I want you to come down to the studio this morning and show me your footage. And this is basically the first footage I ever directed in my life. Uh-huh. And um, I went down, I showed him the stuff. He says, this is good. Okay? And we took the footage and cut it into a little segment and 
he then cut the negative again and brought all the 25 prints back from Georgia and went to the, I, I guess, the second reel and cut it into the head of the second reel of the film uh-huh. so that so that the footage would be in the movie. And he said, "You congratulations! You've taken a loser and turned it into a winner." Wow! And, and that was his main concern: that I had taken a film that had flopped and filled the seats. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think he was impressed by that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, what I thought was going to be a, a dismissal turned into a, a, a pat on the back, and. Um, you know, I've known the guy <clears throat> since 1980, so it's it's been you know 30 years, 30 plus years. So it's yeah. it's quite a, it's it, you know you know he's he was an idol of mine as a kid because of you know films like the the Poe films and, and Premature Burial and all those films and and the Attack of the Crab Monsters and Not of This Earth and so so many Wild Angels. Oh, so um, to get a pat on the back from this guy was you know a big thrill. And, um, um, you know, he's, he's earned his reputation for, you know, being a little uh, thrifty minded, but, uh, I think that's carried over to me so that I can, I can make these films for, you know, a lot less than other people can make them for. Well, that's very cool. And I mean, it really truly is. That's a, it's a, a wonderful story and, 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 you know, how cool for you at the time too, you know, and, and to have that in your history. Um, the the reason I asked about the marketing was in the notion of storytelling. It, it was coming around to the notion of cutting a trailer. It, that I was going to say, oftentimes a trailer isn't exactly the story that the movie uh, is that was shot, but it's designed to get you in the seats, you right? Know, as, as is the art, and and but have the, but the, that way of thinking, you know, when you when you go to direct a movie now or you go to accept a project now, I would imagine that there's you know, knowing that you that you were able to cut things and get people there or advertise people there, does does that impact or somehow influence the way you tell stories today, or, or through your history? That is one of the most convoluted questions I've ever heard. <laughs> good, good. Sort it out. And, I have and, no and, idea what you just <laughs> said. And, Has uh, your background as an editor and marketer helped you in telling stories today? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay, so I'm sorry. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, no, that's sorry, fair. that's that, that, <laughs> that question goes out the window. All right. I mean, so I mean, I cut the trailers. It's fun, you know. You cut the trailers. You, you you say, well, when you when you're done with the trailer and you and you and you think you've done a good job, um, it's fun to watch it, you know, and say, oh, this we really fooled them on this one, you know. That's still being done today by the studios. Yep. I mean. All I all I can recall is like one of the one of the great ones re, uh, in recent vintage was that Clint Eastwood movie Hereafter. Okay, uh-huh. the film's a two-hour bore, yeah. bore, but the trailer's just full of that tidal wave. Right. Okay. It's just it it looks like it's a disaster movie about a tidal wave. Okay. Because right. the because obviously the the people who put it together said, what have we got here? Okay, yeah. so that trailer is just full of special effects, which is not what the film is about at all. But it, you know, same thing with Flight. That's about Denzel Washington, you know, 
facing his booze. Okay. okay. But the trailer is all about a, a plane crash. It looks like a plane crash movie. And again, it's Hollywood taking the what they think the audience wants and giving it to them. Sometimes they don't, you know, the audience doesn't get what they what they what they what they uh, expected. You know, I'm not saying Hereafter was a bad movie, but it was about you know, it wasn't about a tidal wave, True. and or a tsunami, and and flight was not about a plane crash. But you wouldn't know that from watching the trailers. So again, when I watch a trailer, I'm always thinking, how are they how are they how are they getting me here? Okay. Well. Right, it, right. I mean, you know, when I, especially when I was younger, we always went, the stronger the trailer, probably the more the dog the movie was. That was just the kind of appreciation we had for, you know, uh, whenever an advertising campaign came out. The, in fact, where I felt really wrong, I, and I and I share this, you know, quite often, is I was sitting at the Alex Theater in, in Glendale with a friend of mine watching uh, a trailer for a movie and there was somebody being chased by natives and running through this and a big boulder fall. And I saw the trailer to Indiana Jones and my friend said, I really want to see that. I said, oh, it's going to be a dog. There you go. They've thrown everything into the trailer. I can't imagine it being any good. Of course, it came out and I loved it. But but, uh, my my point isn't the, 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 the hook and the grab. My point about the cutting or the advertising in terms of influence today is like, for example, when you when you have an editor, what uh, on your film as one of the four po- most important people, what are you looking for this person to be able to do to assist? Make me you look like a champ. Stuff? Make me look go. like a champ. Okay, I may have I may have totally screwed up something, or I may not I, I may not have realized what I had, and sometimes a new eye with a talent, can take something mundane and turn it into something great. By, now, twisted, by pulling a shot of somebody's, re, some uh, pulling a reaction shot that I didn't plan on from some right. some someplace and putting it where it where it is, putting it in the wrong spot but getting the right the right atmosphere. So an editor, that's why an editor, a good editor, is very important. I'm currently working with a with an editor named Tony Randall, who um, is also a director. Um, he did the Hellraiser movies. He did Ticks. He did a lot of, of of fun sci-fi outings in the past, and he has been cutting some of my movies recently and has done an incredible job. Wow, that's because, so cool. Because he has a, he has the director sense. Well, I had, I had, for example, I just, I just, uh, a project that we're doing here. I, I got rid of an editor because after missing six or seven deadlines and not getting me a frame of the movie, you know, that I could look at, just even for a loose rough cut. Dump them, um, dump them. I did, I did, I dumped them. So, so what's, but, but what's interesting is that you know others in my crew are going, well, why don't you cut it? And I go, I don't want to do that. That's not my job. And people don't, you know. I know there are people who want to cut their own movies and think that they should, but uh, I've always, I've always thought to have, you know, an editor, somebody who, who your your second pair of eyes. Um, and I and I ask that because I know you, you you came from a cutting background. That's why, you know, editing background. That's why. You know, I had some I had some fun cutting, you know, crazy stuff back then. I I used to like to cut other people's stuff. Uh-huh. I never liked cutting my own stuff. 
mm-hmm. because I didn't. I wanted. I wanted, as you said, a second eye. And you know, if you're you're too close to material, and you're not going to see something that other people might see, and especially a good editor. So I I loved cutting other people's stuff. I like cutting other people's trailers, but I hated cutting my own. Although I did cut a couple of my own trailers, <clears throat> just because I knew what I wanted. But you know what to do. But um, in most cases, I just let the editor cut the trailers, and I was always very pleased with what I got. Ah, uh, that's so cool, Jim. I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have to take a a short break here. And what are you gonna take a piss? I would like to, but no, I'm going to tell the audience about who's coming up. <laughs> I okay, have a well then, uh, <laughs> mute me, mute me up. I want to go uh, take a run of the restroom. Oh, okay, I'll mute you up, and then uh, we'll be right back. Okay, there you are. All right, so everybody, we're listening to Mr. Jim Wojnarowski, uh talk about directing and editing and marketing and producing and writing and all sorts of really great stuff. I want to tell you about my next guests coming up on Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Again, the official URL is rexsykes.com. That's my name, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. And uh, please do leave comments right now if you're listening to the show, if you're in the chat room, live or archived listening, uh, at the player, underneath the player, underneath the chat window, if it's open, uh, there is a comment window. Please do leave comments there. Please tweet live, tweet, put it on Facebook or, or Google Plus or whatever your face, favorite social media means uh, are and uh, help us spread the word about this interview with Jim as well as uh, all of the other interviews that you might enjoy at rexsykes.com. Help me get the word out. I really do appreciate it. My next guest, Wednesday the 29th, is Peter Marshall. Uh, Peter and I are doing the director series. We're well into it. Uh, you can listen to any one of the uh, episodes out of order, but but keep in mind that it is a director series. It starts at point one and goes on. I think we're at episode 25 right now coming up. Might be 26. I, I don't honestly recall, but we've been in depth covering the script breakdown and breaking down the process of what a director does to work with the script, the actors, the camera, and everything else. Uh, Jim McCarns is coming up on the 30th. He is a TV executive, worked at CBS for many years. He's written a book called 101 Ways to Break into the TV Industry or Break into Hollywood, and uh, he's going to come up and tell you about just exactly that, how uh, he began his career and what are some of the tips and suggestions and things that you can do to jumpstart your career. Todd Robinson, the director of the recent movie Phantom, will be back on June 4th. Uh, You're going to want to hear him. He's a fantastic listen and julian adams who produced the phantom along with my next guest pendentium uh, are both up on the 5th and the 6th of june respectively uh, julian is an actor and producer who's produced the phantom in alaska confederate and pendentium of course produced backdraft and robin hood and houdini and the phantom and the outer limits tv show and so many things so you're going to want to stay tuned doug richardson who wrote uh, bad boys money train um Die Hard 2, he's got novels and blogs, uh, he's a writer, you're going to want to listen to him, comes up on the 11th of June. And then Alex Cruz, uh, you're going to want to hear from him, he uh, works in in uh, motion pictures uh, and, and very, I'm not going to say anymore other than, it's a very fascinating way, you're going to want to hear from him on the 13th and I, I forgot that Randy Miller's coming up on the 12th of June, Randy Miller, composer, will be back on the 12th. And so uh, stay tuned to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. You can find a lot of the information on uh, Facebook, my Rex Sykes Movie Beat friends page on Facebook. If you're not a a friend there, go click on the like button and become a friend. Uh, The reason for that is because the current website, 
uh, is under construction. So the interviews are announced at RexX.com at the interviews blog, but most of the other blogs have been suspended until the new site is launched, and I don't have a date for that yet. All right, everybody, we are uh, back. Jim, are you there? I am back, Rex. I was listening to your uh, little spiel there. You know, uh, Rex Sykes, movie beat. I mean, doesn't that sound like an SCTV sketch? (laughs) (laughs) It sure does. Who would play you? Uh, Who would play me? That's a good question. What do you think? Uh, um, Martin Short? Yeah, when they're looking to cast a when they're looking to cast a Rex Sykes type, right? I mean, it just it's just, it's it sounds like it comes right after Farm Film Report. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. You know, actually, it uh, it it was not even my idea. It was uh, my web developer's idea for that title. If God rest his soul, he's no longer around. But uh, but he came up with the name, and I said, well, all right, it's not exactly what well, uh, my what producer I'm all about. my pro- my producer Bill Dever. I uh, asked me what I was doing today. I said, "Well, I'm going to be on Rex Sykes' movie beat." He said, "That's an SCTV sketch." And I said, <laughs> "Yes, it is. Yes, it is." It is. And uh, anyway, um, we're back. What would you like to know now? I would like to know. Some, ask me some juicy stuff. Come on. Well, I'd like to know everything, and and I'm sure that that's what do you what do you what am I wearing? I'm wearing a pair of nice jeans. Socks with holes in them and uh, a a T-shirt from the Rio in Vegas. Oh man, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But you let me let me put it this way: you have done uh, either separately or all in one film. You know, you have uh, you've been scary movies, uh, fun movies, comedy, action. You know, sexy, you know, horror, um, sci-fi. You name it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's all one film. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. so, and you've made 160 movies, and like I said, you've got so many that are you're directing and producing and writing. Um, how do you do it? How do you? How do you? I mean, are you? Do you still? Do you still want to write movies and, and make them, or do you just? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing one now. Um, I'm co-writing actually with a guy in um, California. We're writing a movie called Cobra Gator. Um. And uh, that's going to be for the Sci-Fi Channel later on this year. Uh huh. So, but but now, Cobricator is is kind of like a fairly high concept, I, I would think. No, um, it's not. You know, they did first. We did. But, I did Dino Croc versus Super Gator. Uh, then I did uh, Piranaconda. So, right, but I, that's the mashups. Now they're looking for the mashups. The mashup. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's what I meant in terms of high concept, but mashups. So, it, but it, it pretty much says, it says a lot right there in the title, or right there in the, in you know, um, right up front. I mean, you kind of get what it might be about. Yeah, I think you're right there, Rex. <laughs> so, <laughs> Look, when when I was a kid, I always I always gravitated toward the obvious titles. You know, the Blob. Or uh, or Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, the Giant Behemoth. Those titles they they jump right out at you and say, you know, to a kid and say, come on, come on in, kid, you're going to see something. And even when they didn't deliver what the poster was there, what was on the poster, they usually delivered to some extent uh, what a kid wanted to see. 
So what do you and that was perfect because my next question really was what do you what do you how do you deliver what do you deliver what's important in a movie like that that you, you that you well, do for your audience you know, what do they expect I try to I try to del- here's the, here's the thing I make movies for me I make movies okay. that I want to see okay if there's something in a movie that I don't like I usually don't film it. I try to make a movie that I want to see that will please me. And if it if uh-huh. it pleases me, it may please others. Uh I made a film once that did not please me. The whole process from beginning to end was awful. And it's a terrible movie. Um uh I'll tell you the title was Vampirella. I thought it was going to be a wonderful movie, and I worked very hard on it. And from the moment it got green-lighted, people were putting their two cents in, saying you had to hire this girl, you had to do it here, you had to do this, you had to do that. And it turned into a nightmare, just a, a, a nightmare from start to finish. And you know, I did the best I could under the circumstances, but there was too much control from the production end. And... You know about who was in it, what they were going to do in it, and I never, I never felt like I was any part of the creative process. I was just yelling action and cut, and it was a just difficult, difficult movie to make. Same thing happened on a film called Victim of Desire with uh, Mark Singer and and Shannon Tweed. Um, a producer friend of mine asked me to direct it. I said I read the script, and I I said. This doesn't make any sense. This guy's doing this for no for an unusual reason. I said, "What reason is he doing this for?" And the, the producer couldn't answer. I said, "He said, well, you'll figure it out." I said, "No, I won't. It's just not there. It's not there in the script." And he said, "Please." And I said, oh. "Anyway, I made the film, and of course, it made no sense." And uh, so, those are the two I always bring up as as being like uh, the two that I wish I had said no to but again got to put some food on the table <laughs> right well i i think that it's important to have a pretty much a single voice or a single vision when it comes to making a movie i mean that would be my opinion. yeah but that doesn't happen rex not no, in doesn't. today's world come on no no sci-fi, but, Chan- but... sci-fi channel has all kinds of rules and regulations regarding a movie so does Showtime. So does Lifetime. Right. So does uh, HBO. Right. There's a there's a ton of uh, uh, fingers in the pot, and it and it and and you have to be able to dance around right. to get get some of your way on making these films, and you know some of them turn out well because the people that are providing ideas and thoughts and 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 dictums. Are right. there to make sure that the product works well, but other times you, you do well without them. But again, you know, it's it's a it's still a collaborative world in the in right. the film business, unless you're right. unless unless you take that you know ex one out in your backyard and start shooting whatever you want. There's going to be somebody that you know that'll say it would be better if you did it this way. And uh, again, I face it all the time. Um, I, I will point to an example, and I'll okay. make it quick. 
Um, I do a number of, of these late night erotic movies for Cinemax, right? And that's the only place where nobody ever says a word. It's like in all the <laughs> bigger because it doesn't mean anything to them. It's right. just like just bring us the film, right. and 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 in those in, in many cases I get to do fun stuff that where nobody's saying a word. There's nobody on set. There's just right. me and the actors and a, and a small crew. Right. But when I do a film like Piranaconda or or Camel Spiders, Dinocroc versus Super, you know, all those bigger sci-fi shows, people will look at people are watching, people are looking at the script, people are looking who I'm casting. So it's again a toss-up. Right, and and for, and for people entering the business, that they should be aware of the fact that. You know, there's a lot of cooks making the soup. My my question, though, goes back to, I said, I, I think it's important that there be a single vision, meaning you said, I like to make movies that I want to see. And my question goes, how do you do that? You know, in other words, I want to make movies that I want to see. I think that's an important, uh, that it's an important piece. Now, you know, thrown into that mix is the nature of collaboration or you're a gun for hire and people have a way of telling you what to do. But what is it that you want to see? When, what, and I know this is going to differ for every movie and every genre, but what, as as a movie maker, as a creator, as a storyteller, do you think needs to be in the film as a storyteller? Um, well, I'll tell you something that, that doesn't exist in a lot of movies these days. And the ones that are successful at doing it um, are, are usually very financially rewarded um, is putting characters in movies where uh, the character is what people come to see. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, of all the superhero films out there, the one that's most popular is Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And Iron Man is created is by Robert Downey. He creates that character, and he and he and he's good at it. He's a superhero with personality. So bringing personality to a film is so important because if you can't relate to the person or people on screen, then there's there's nothing to to cheer for or or be upset about, and. and that's what creates story, is personality and character. Um, I don't see that a lot. Um, uh, I just went to see the new Star Trek movie, which uh-huh. I thought was in, which, I, which I thought was very inferior to the first one, um, because the show, original show, was about the camaraderie between Spock, Kirk, and Bones. And they they misuse those characters in in this film. They don't have them. They don't, I don't think they ever did a scene with the three of them together. And I said, well, that's what made that show such a success. And and I think they did it better in the first one. And but the second one is just like Bones is like a, a secondary, a third, you know, a third tier character. And I said, that's not what this film's about. Or this franchise is about to me. So again, I think character is the most important thing 
you can bring to a movie. Um, if you can bring personality to a movie, you, you can you can almost get away with less action. And a lot of people who are starting out to make movies, they hire their friends who can't act, and right. they hire and they and and they sp- speak perfunctory dialogue that progresses the story, but does not make the um, audience care for the characters. And that's the most important thing you can establish early on, is that the character has got some personality. I I myself am guilty of it, okay? Every director is, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean... I mean, I'm like, like a film like Blade Runner. I mean, uh, who could warm up to Harrison Ford? You warm up to Rutger Hauer more than you warm up to Russ, you know, um, Harrison Ford. And um, you need personality. And if you don't get it or you don't have it, you got you got you're you're facing an uphill battle. Now, I mean, really, I mean, this is a twofold thing because the character has to be written well, and then you need somebody who has the person to cast well. I mean, you have to cast it right. Yep, that's right. You need something written well and cast well, and that happens occasionally. <laughs> Doesn't happen <laughs> often, but it happens right. occasionally. You sometimes, sometimes it's by accident, but. Uh, uh, for whatever the case, when it happens, it it, it makes for a fun movie. Do I you mean, have some? Go ahead. Do I have what? Oh, I was just going to say, do you have a suggestion or, or or a tip or something to to help the writers who are listening? You know about you know you said perfunctory dialogue that just furthers the story but doesn't really get you know to the to the heart of the character. Or uh, do you have as a writer director? Do you have Suggestions for what? No, what I have no suggestions. <laughs> and if I had them, I wouldn't give them to you. Well, there you go. I don't want anybody stealing my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's you know, it, 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 the toughest thing is, is the toughest thing is a blank page, right? And then what? And it has the one at the top, and you have exterior, and then what do you write? Or interior? What do you write? That's what. That's why the the writers get paid the big bucks in Hollywood because they sit there and sometimes write something very you know well done. And uh, um, I, I would I would tell writers this um, that you know there's only like twenty five or thirty stories you can tell um, when you boil it all down. The thing is creating characters that are fun. And and putting them in the situations that you know audiences appreciate. I mean, how many times has Die Hard been done since 1988? Okay, and we know the good ones and we know the bad ones. You know, I heard a joke the other day where the guy says, "Hey, I got a great idea. I'm doing Die Hard in an office building," and <laughs> uh, it's it's been so long that it's about time to do something like that again. <laughs> Because the story, this you know, Hollywood's not uh, reaching out and branching out with new ideas these days. They're just you know copying old ones, right? And and uh, sometimes in a very bad way. So so yeah. 
I don't have any great inspirational things to say to writers, except write well. Write for yourself and proofread. I can't tell you how many scripts I get that are just full of grammar mistakes. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, when you pick Pet up a peeve. script, you, when you pick up a script, I mean, and you pick up many, and there's those that you can rule out almost immediately. And, and yes, it could be formatting or grammar or spelling or you know those. But but what grabs you? I mean, in other words, where what do you find? Is it is it? Um, I mean, scripts are, I think, just nearly impossible to read to begin with. I mean, they're, they're not many people's favorite thing to read. So do you have a sense of what the ingredients are when you when you find a script that you go, God, I want to make this into a movie? You know, what are the elements you know, that are there? You know, I can't really answer that question well because I've written most of the scripts I've, I've directed. And I've written other scripts for people. But I, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever just filmed a a script that somebody else wrote. I mean, Mike McLean wrote Piranaconda. He did a great job. But I, you know, I was, I had to adapt it when I was on location because, you know, he wasn't writing for the locations I was on. So I had to adapt it, but he did a nice job. He's a good writer, very good writer. Um, but most of the times I'm having, I'm having to adapt what I've got to a, work with the you know the locations I'm working on so you're and, writing on the fly while you're while you're on location yes of course you know the, 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 the somebody can write you know the army comes over the hill as right. one sentence but uh you don't have an army and you have to figure out how you're going to do that how are you going to create the idea that you know the army's coming over the hill sometimes you ha- you can't sometimes you just have to say the hell with that. The army's not going to show up here. And if the army is the... And I'll tell you something right now. One of the oh. sci-fi channel rules is no army. They hate the army. They, they, they One of the dictums they, they put down early was um, no, uh, no army people unless they're cut off from their, their, their base. Um, no uh, colonels talking in corridors. And no night scenes. So, wow, really? No night no, scenes? No night scenes. Unless they're very well lit. So, the uh, <laughs> the worst thing you could do is having two army guys walk down a corridor at night. Because they hate scenes in corridors. <laughs> well, so, so, okay, well, here, for career advice, this... this uh, you say the dictum coming from the Sci-Fi Channel, and you you do you know, Sci-Fi, and you mentioned other television networks. Oh yes, and they want they want the monster in the first five minutes. They want the monster to show up in the first five minutes. No waiting, you know, like they back in the old days, the monster didn't show up for forty minutes. They want that monster on screen and doing some dastardly stuff um, in the first five. And I don't blame them because you know kids today are not the same as as we were back in the 60s and 70s and 80s they want they want that monster you know front and center or they're going to turn they're going to turn somewhere else so i don't blame them in 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 requesting the monster early I, as a kid i would have been thrilled if the monster showed up that early but usually they kept the kept the kids in the dark till 40 minutes in before they showed you anything and that was always a bust for me. I mean, 
Journey to the Center of the Earth, the original one with Pat Boone and James Mason, they don't they don't even start down for the first 40 minutes. They don't get to that mountain for the first 40 minutes. All ta- talk and gab for 40 minutes, and, and you can't do that these days. No one's going to put up with it. You know, but this is this is you know very pertinent, I think, to filmmakers out there. I, I've always had a feeling that there's a couple of ways to approach this business. One is. I decide that I'm going to write a story and I'm going to make it and somehow I get it financed and then I take it out either festivals or I try and find distributors and I go, there, do you want it? It's kind of like I make you a sandwich and I bring it to you and go, do you want to eat it? And you go, you know, I don't really like peanut butter. You know, the guy down the hall does, but I don't. So why don't you go check it down the hall? Or on the other hand, I find out what you like or what you want or what you're able to eat or digest or in this case, sell. I know what the ingredients are and then I go and try and do the best I can by fulfilling those ingredients with a story that I want to tell. So if I know that the monster has to be there in the first five minutes and that there shouldn't be any marine, you know, soldiers in it, no quarters, or right, then I write the movie based on that, or I go out and I find out, you know, what are you, you know, you're able to sell uh, movies with three-headed, you know, goats, but not with, uh, you know, something else. Then well, people have been doing make- Rex. People have been doing this forever. Ever. A, success, a su- successful movie always begats, you know, 25 imitations because they right. want a piece of that action. I mean, in the 60s, when James Bond became hot, they it was like they couldn't get away from spy movies. Right. When Star right. Wars came out, you couldn't get away from cheap imitations. Right. You couldn't get away from them. They were there on, you know, within a year. And a, a successful movie always uh, sets the stage for 25 rip-offs. Well, it's the imitators. But the, but the point I'm making is, or the question that I have is, it seems that it would be beneficial for filmmakers out there, especially those starting out, to know what either the market bears or what these channels buy before they invest all their time, energy, and money you know, in doing something that no one's ultimately going to want. If if I've got a movie where the monster comes in 40 minutes later and you've got one that comes in five minutes into it and that's part of the dictums from sci-fi, I think unless unless there's something incredibly um, earth-shattering about the 40-minute-later monster movie, they're going to look at yours. You know what, you know what I'm saying? And, so, and they're going to take by and they're not going to buy right. the other. Buy the other. So, so how do these? How do people out there find out? Do they call the networks? Are they on their website? How do they know what they need to... Is there a way for filmmakers watch, after to watch w- watch the other movies in the in the in the system? So watch, watch Sci-Fi other, Channel. Watch the Sci-Fi Probably. Channel, and and see what's what's popular and what's not. And um, it, and it's like you know, that's should, the, you know I'm sorry. They, they, I mean, that really should be a no-brainer. I had a casting director once tell me. I've actually had many of them tell me. You know, it's amazing how many people will come and audition for a show, and then when I ask them, "Have you seen the show?" They go, "No." You know, and they're like, "Your job as an actor is to watch everything, and if you're going to audition for something, you need to know what the show is about." In the same way, I guess, if you were going to write for the show, you would need to know what the thing was about. But, but it, it you know, it doesn't. I mean, I, I guess it bears repeating that. If if you want to try and sell something a lifetime, you find the formula. You know somebody's got to die in the romance story of lifetime or whatever, or Hallmark or Sci-Fi or or any of the networks buying. Yep, um, is to familiarize yourself with it. That's right. That's However, what I do. that's very cool. However, I, you wouldn't necessarily know that the army wasn't 
I mean, you wouldn't know what to exclude, I guess, would you? If I get, uh, some, uh, one writes in the uh, in the chat room, they said, well, I guess I should shelve the Marines contained uh, space atmospheric horrors. Well, first of all, first of all, Rex, you're not going to be able to afford the Army showing up. True. Well, that's, for the most part, that's very true. You're not going to afford tanks. Right. Jet planes and stealth fighters and everything else. You're not gonna unless you've got a lot of dough. Right. You can't afford that. And then it okay. won't sell for that much. <laughs> right. And nobody wa- and nobody wants to see a monster movie where just might comes in and takes the monster away. They want a, a, an interesting, clever way to dispose of a monster if it's disposed of at all. Okay. But you've got to fight the monster cleverly or or in, in, in intriguingly rather than just say, okay, here comes uh, Uncle Sam. Boom. Monster's dead. You can't do that. And you can't afford it anyway. So they, you know, they like locations, interesting locations. They like, um, you know, staying out of L.A. They like... Um, they like a lot of you know fun things, but they don't like armies, and they don't like army guys talking in corridors, and they don't like night scenes. <laughs> I think they monitor these films and they see that people t- turn off during night scenes because of whatever reason. Maybe they just get bored or they turn off, so no night scenes. And I can live with that. I can live with that. Well, it's easier to shoot too. I mean, yes, it is. Yeah. But if someone if someone wants to go out and make money right now, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't make a twenty five thousand dollar monster movie. Uh, the, the the market is glutted with those kind of backyard productions. Um, you got to spend at least a hundred, maybe a hundred and twenty five, and make make something intriguing, make something real that that works, and um uh you certainly can't do CGI for a hundred and a quarter, so you know, do a guy in a suit if you want to do that. But you gotta you gotta you gotta have a, if you can get a name or two, get a name or two, even for a day or two. Get a name. And 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 get an intriguing creature and put him in an intriguing situation. Okay? Um too many people just fall back on, you know, monster in the woods. Right, right. And, you know, those things go nowhere. I mean, where do you ever see them? Except, you know, being sold on on tables at conventions. And uh, that's it. You never see them on television, and you never see them in the movies. And those are your two... And you never see them in foreign television or foreign movies. There's no market for them. So, you... Go ahead. Yes, it's excellent. I think this is very excellent advice for people. Do you think that there's a, a better chance for people out there to break into selling to cable television than there is to selling, obviously, getting a theatrical run? You know, I mean, their movies. Today. You're not going to get. You're not going to get a theatrical run, unless you're just not. Unless you're working for a studio, you're not going to get a theatrical run. Unless you're just filthy rich and rent a bunch of theaters, you're not going to get a theatrical run. I mean, open the paper at your in your location. Right, open right, the right. paper in Florida. Open a paper in Los Angeles, and show me some independent movie playing that isn't studio, you know, Financial connected right. in some way. Okay, it's not. It's not there. 
You're not going to see you know Bigfoot versus uh, um, the snow beast playing on any any market. Okay, yeah. and I just say big. I'm sure there is a Bigfoot versus the snow beast somewhere. I'm, I'm sure somebody made it, but getting it to a getting it to viewers is a tough job. Okay, uh, especially in light of the fact that no one's going to want to release a movie that costs you know twenty five thirty grand. Um, for you know because you the advertising money alone is going to be you know eight to ten times that right just to let people know in a small area that you've got this film playing and you've got to get it into a theater you got to rent the theater it's it's not happening these days the best way to get something make make a little money um is to maybe make a good movie and get it on Netflix but they don't pay a lot. And streaming is coming along, but it's not here yet. So when streaming comes along, there might be more venues and more money. But, you know, not everybody's doing it. And it's a very, you know, it's it's still very exclusive. Not not a lot of other people are doing it. And you, and, you, know, you can put it on YouTube, but there's no money there. Right. So filmmaking has opened up incredibly wide thanks to video. Anybody with a video camera could go out, with a high-def video camera, could go out and make a, make a movie. But getting that movie to, as you say, an audience is the, is the tougher project. And so you have to make something that you're making for a specific audience. And um, figuring out how you're going to sell it once you've made it. It's tough. So, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's easy. Um, no, I I get it. It's, but, it's go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. We I was just going to say we've got about 6 minutes left, so I wanted to but go ahead. All right. Well, um you know, if if I was faced with with make, wanting to make a movie right now, I I have I'd say I'd have to find somebody who's got, you know, a hundred grand at least, and hire the right people, get a get a couple of names, and make make a semi real movie that you can take to distributors and say sell this overseas. Okay, I produced a movie um, last summer called Lucky Bastard. Uh-huh. It cost about it cost about a hundred and thirty grand, and it's doing very well. Um, it's a tough movie to watch, and it's but it's got it's it's it captures it captures audiences and it's getting great reviews. Okay, and it's a it's a found footage movie about the porno industry, and it's you know got some really good name Hollywood actors in it, and but it's a tough and rough movie to watch, and but the reviews have been good. So again, they the 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 people that financed it, you know, spent about a hundred and a quarter on it. The original budget was supposed to be ninety, but they ended up spending a hundred and a quarter on it. And which is why I always say, you know, ask for more money than you think you're going to need. And but they're doing well with it right now. Uh, they've they've gotten some. They've got it played. They played theatrically in California. Um, and uh, they're getting a New York release, and it's slowly going, you know, 
through all the the art markets and that would that's one way to go make something that you're proud of that you can sell to a distributor or not sell but at least offer to a distributor that they can try to get you know foreign foreign sales et cetera et cetera et cetera you know and once you make your money back go make another movie right Anyway, I'm, I'm I'm ranting now, so I, I all I can say is it's been a, it's 90 minutes has, has gone by really really quick, uh, thanks to your um, you know um, quick wit and uh, interesting palaver. And uh, um, what else can I say except well, thank been, you for the opportunity to talk to uh, an audience. Well, you have been fabulous, and and the advice I think that people should take to heart really really listen to what you say and really investigate out there their options. I mean, if if you know, and become a student of what's selling and what's airing, and what people are releasing, and and uh, you know, because if 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 somebody wants a commercial success, they need to do the commercial work to make mm-hmm. it successful. And uh, I'm going to have to leave it pretty much with that. You've been fabulous. I I really do appreciate your candor and your and your directness and the same and uh, your being here. And I would love to have you back on the show and and have the audience uh, listen to you some more in the future. All right, Rex. Well, uh, you take care and you have a uh, uh, hell of a day. All right. And so we'll let people know when that happens. And in the meantime, thank you so much. And enjoy. I'll talk to you in just a couple of minutes, as I promised I would. And then, um, uh, but thank you so much for your involvement and your contribution here today. You're welcome. All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, fascinating guest, absolutely, Mr. Jim Wynorski. He uh, uh, provided lots of insight into this business and into the uh, the notion of making independent features and product uh, for market. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and I hope you'll continue to share this interview and other interviews with your friends, your family, your industry connections, both near and far, and uh, that you'll do so in your favorite media means as well, either by Twitter or Facebook. Leave comments at at the player. Sometimes, depending on your browser, you have to wait until the player closes down whenever you're listening live or archived, but you have to wait, and then that comment window becomes available. I see it all the time. I mean, I just go to Blog Talk, look at the, the thing, and underneath the... Um, what I'm listening to in the guest biography, it says comments, and so I, you can type a comment in there. Rate and review the podcast. And uh, again, follow me on on Twitter at Rex Sykes Movie BT, Rex Sykes Movie BT on Twitter. Friend us on Facebook, Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends on Facebook, Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends on Facebook. There's a YouTube channel as well, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, that you can go and, and see different interviews and, and other movie clips. But again, I want to thank uh, Jim Wynorski for being here today, and I want to thank you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat, uh, those of you who joined us in the chat room, those of you who promote the show by tweets uh, before, during, and after the show. I really do appreciate that. You guys rock. You are the best. Um, I love you. Can't do it without you. So thank you so much for for uh, making that happen. Stay tuned. I got a lot of great guests coming up in the near future. My next guest is director Peter Marshall. Again, we're going to continue with the director series. So be sure to listen to that and uh, and to all of the interviews. Go back to the archives at rexsykes.com, r-e-x-s-i-k-e-s.com, and listen to um, all the recorded shows. There's over 400 hours of professionals sharing their expertise with you. So, everybody, 
Have a fabulous day. Make your movies. Complete your projects. Until we meet the next time, that is a wrap.